So whenever I was a kid, like most kids that grew up in the late 70s, early 80s, I had Legos. Now, I know my parents purchased for me sets of Legos, the barn and the house and all that kind of stuff, but I don't think they really stuck around much. I mean, what I actually remember is in the bottom of my closet, a, a, an old paper box full of just Legos of all shapes, sizes, colors, and it didn't matter. And whenever it was raining outside, and I couldn't be outside, uh, my parents would, or my mom actually, would tell me, you need to go play in your room because I'm like done dealing with you. Sound familiar? And so she would send me to my room, and so I would go to the closet, and after getting bored with 17 other things I had gotten out, I would inevitably go to the Legos, pull out the big, humongous paper box that was full to the brim of Legos, and dump the whole thing out, as far, and it would just spray everywhere. And I would make little things and, and create guns and spaceships and rocket ships and all sorts of things. And I loved playing with Legos. I got to build stuff. I got to learn a little bit of engineering, actually, believe it or not. By if, you, if your foundation isn't good, then your building wasn't, wouldn't last very long. And I learned, uh, I guess the best way to put it would be uh, harsh <laughs> relationships. You see, my sister would inevitably come into my room because I was having more fun than she was. And she'd walk into my room and she'd knock over whatever tower I was building. She's three years younger than I am. And that would not go over well whenever you're seven. And so inevitably what would happen is that a fight would break out or something like that, or I would push her down. And she, being younger than me and cuter than me, would cry and mom would come in and punish me because that's the way it works with kids. So I put away my Legos a long time ago. Just recently, I discovered them anew. And if you haven't been around the Lego scene recently, it's different than it was whenever we were kids, right? I mean, whenever we were kids, the sets were not too expensive, and you could buy lots of them, and you could mix them and match them and all that kind of stuff. Today, my gigantic box of Legos would be appalling to someone today, because now we have these. You see, I've gotten into the habit actually recently... Um, between Christmas and New Year's, it's a little bit of a downtime, and so I kind of take a, the opportunity to, for some of you, do puzzles. For me, it's Legos, and so I buy a, a grotesquely expensive set of Legos, don't tell my wife how much I spent, and then spend the next few days pulling one bag out at a time and assembling it, and it, whenever there's 12, 15, 20 bags in the box, it's wonderfully fun. But something ends up happening every single time I assemble something with Lego. At some point in time, somewhere along in the process, whether it's, it's near the bottom, near the base, or maybe the inside where the engine is, I get something wrong. I flip a piece backwards, or I use the wrong piece, and it affects everything afterwards, but I don't notice it right away. You see, it's not until a few bags later, whenever I come back around to that same part again, and things don't fit, and then you wonder if they sent you the wrong pieces. At least that's what happens to me, right? And you try, and you try, and you try, and you look back, and you go, what is going wrong? Why, did, why have I got wrong here? And inevitably, what, ends up, what I end up discovering is that there's a piece that I didn't do right. It's my fault. It's not Lego's fault. It's not the Statue of Liberty's fault. She's wonderful. It's my fault. I think sometimes our lives are like that. 
five years into a marriage and it just doesn't feel right anymore. You get that seven-year itch like we used to talk about whenever I first, first got married and was warned about. Or that job that you got that you loved. After a few years, it just becomes a little bit more like I'm just going to work. Get up, go to work, go home, wash, rinse, repeat, over and over again. Something feels missing. Or maybe there's something within one of your hobbies that you used to love doing. And now, for whatever reason, the taste isn't there, the excitement isn't there. It's just not as interesting to you. I have a feeling probably what's happened is something earlier on in the process didn't go, you made a mistake or you made a deliberate choice and now later on it affected everything. You see, sometimes there's one thing that affects everything. So here's the question I want us to answer today. What is the one thing that affects everything for you in your life? What's the one thing that affects everything? You see, all of us have got certain things, right? We've all got family. That could be the one thing that affects everything for you. We've all got friends. Well, most of us have got friends, I think. You all are wonderful people. I think you all have friends. All of us have got hobbies and work and things that in our lives that matter to us. But and maybe it's just because I'm a guy. Sometimes I have the ability to compartmentalize each of those things so they don't actually impact the other. I'm actually old enough that I remember uh, the time before cell phones. And so I was working and my wife, if she needed to get a hold of me, she had to call the office phone, and sometimes they had to run me down or something like that. I wasn't immediately accessible via text or phone. So what would happen is, is that there would, there would be this isolation, a compartmentalization that would occur. My wife couldn't get a hold of me, so she didn't bother trying. And so it was easier then to compartmentalize my family and my spouse from 8 to 5, my family during the other times. Maybe as a guy, uh, you have the same kind of thing where, where the weekends are like, I'm not doing work on the weekends. Or maybe, heaven forbid, you get to Sunday morning and you're like, I'm not doing anything. I, I need to be sitting on my couch watching TV or nothing or whatever. So what's the one thing for you that affects everything? Actually, here's a better question. What if the one thing that affects everything isn't a thing at all? Let me say that again. What if the one thing that affects everything isn't a thing? What if it's a person? That's where it's going to take us to Romans chapter 10. We're continuing our series on the book of Romans, and um, as Patrick has mentioned the past couple of weeks, this is really difficult as it feels like we're just kind of flying by and throwing stuff out at you guys, hoping you'll catch it because this is really a thick chew for a book that you can read in one hour, finished beginning to end. This is hard stuff. And so what I wanted to do today was just kind of dig into Romans chapter 10, but kind of hit the surface a little bit, but talk about that one thing that affects everything. And it's not even a thing. If you've got your copy of God's Word, or if you've got it on your phone, or whatever, that's awesome. I want you to go ahead and, and track down the book of Romans. Romans is towards the latter half of your Bible. After 
Matthew, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, then Romans is right there. If you don't have it, we can put it up on the screens. It's not a problem. But we're going to be in Romans chapter 10. What I'd like to do is just kind of read through the passage, and then we'll start breaking it down and see what we can glean out of this. Romans chapter 10, verse 1 says this. Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. And as a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. We're going to jump down just a few verses here. The second half of verse 8 is where we're going to pick up. And that message is the very message about faith that we preach. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord be saved. Verse 14 picks up and says this, But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him unless if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, How beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. Would you pray with me just for a second? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is foundational to everything we're going to be doing over the next few minutes. And so, Father, I pray that I will not tell my story, but I will tell your story instead. Your story of love, life, and peace. And so, God, I pray that you would take your strong spirit, mix it with my weak words, and that today... Someone's life will be changed by what you do through this moment. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So for Paul, he just spent nine chapters talking about how horrible we all are and how we're not good enough. And then he starts to take a shift. You see, after this chapter, what he's going to do is spend the next six chapters talking about the implications of salvation itself. What changes? What happens whenever we're saved? What happens around us? And so this is one of those pivotal moments in the middle of the book that we just can't fly by. We need to take a minute and talk about it because it is the thing that affects everything. The first verse here says, and I'm going to repeat again, Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. Okay, it's easy to just kind of fly past that. The longing of my heart and my prayer to God. It's interesting because earlier in the book, Paul talks about just how serious he is. Whenever we say the longing of our heart, we think very emotional, right? 
And we think about that, that, that emotional love that we had maybe for a girlfriend a long time ago or something, that, that cute puppy love, and that's not what this is. This is Paul in the core of his being feeling almost nauseous that they haven't been saved. Romans chapter 9 verses 2 and 3 says this, My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. And this is where Paul goes just almost too far, I think. He says this, I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. Have you ever felt that way about anybody? Like, God, if, if they could be saved, I'd give up my salvation for that. I don't know that I've ever felt that way. Paul feels that way about an entire nation of people. Have you ever prayed that for the United States of America? God, if I could be cut off from Christ, but the entire United States, if everybody could be saved, then cut me off. I'm okay with that. I don't know if I would do that. Would you? Paul's serious here. Serious about what? That the people of Israel would be saved. And we use that phrase a lot. But what do we mean? Saved from what? For what? Romans 8, chapter 6 helps us. It says, so letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. That's what we're talking about. The difference between death and decay and life and peace. Let's go back and put the two and two together. Paul says, look, I'll take death and decay if you can have life and peace. That's impressive. I love that. Control your mind. Control your mind. See, whenever we let the Holy Spirit control our mind, it changes everything, doesn't it? It changes the way we think about ourselves. We see ourselves differently. It changes the way we think about other people whenever we recognize that they are made in the image of God. It changes the way we even think about the earth and the creation itself. Here's Romans 8, 19-22. It says, for all creation, all creation, mountains, streams, birds, animals, cows, piggies, kitty cats, and puppy dogs, is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. It's our fault. It's our fault. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. See, whenever we are controlled by the Spirit, everything gets changed. The way you think about yourself, the way you think about other people, even the ones that annoy you, the way you think about literally the trees and the mountains and the oceans changes. 
Let's keep going. Let's pick up verse 2 of Romans 10. Romans 10 verse 2 says, I know what enthusiasm they, the people of Israel, have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. They cling to their own way. What I like to call this um, is self-salvation. You ever tried self-salvation? I'll do it my way. Thank you very much, God. Maybe, maybe you try self-salvation by saying, well, how about if I do this and then, God, you do that? How about if, God, I give you Sundays, but you give me Saturdays? How about, God, if I give you a great relationship with my spouse, but, God, you need to give me success in my job? We do that, don't we? We don't want to talk about it. I mean, we don't talk about it because that's gross. But we kind of behave that way. The Israelites definitely behaved that way. They believed that if they followed a certain set of rules, that therefore God would be happy with them. And if God was happy with them, then they would actually be successful. They would have power and peace and wholeness. And we kind of do the same thing too, don't we? We kind of do the whole, you know, well, if, if, I, if, I, if I don't drink too much and I don't curse too much and, I, and I'm good to my kids and, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I'm um, wise and, and in, with integrity at work, then, you know, I, I'm going to be okay, God, right? But yeah, we worry. And whenever we stumble into things that don't make sense, that kind of falls apart, doesn't it? See, there's a difference between living like your faith is a contract versus living like your faith is a covenant. The Israelites lived as if faith and their relationship with God was a contract. If you do this, then I do that. And you could probably, if you wanted to, read that into the Old Testament. It would make sense. But that's not the way God intended it. God actually intended it to the relationship to be a covenant. That idea of, okay, I love you and I care about you. And so therefore, the Old Testament then goes, here's how to be in relationship with me. So whenever you're reading the Old Testament, don't read contract. If I do this, then you give me that. If I do this, then you give me that. Read it instead. We're together and therefore, this is how we behave. Let me, let me be a little bit more practical, okay? So I, I think of a contract, and I'm going to put some, some, some contrasts on the back wall here. I'm going to try not to get in the way so you can read them and all that kind of stuff. But think of a contract like whenever you purchase a car, right? Everybody here has purchased a car or something like that, and it's a transaction. You see, a, a contract is a legal transaction between parties. Oh, there it is. Good kid. So a contract is a legal transaction between parties. I give you money, you give me a car. But a covenant, like a marriage, is different, right? See, a covenant is a commitment involving your whole life. You stand here at an altar and you promise to love, honor, cherish, and obey. And there's no end date assigned. It's a forever kind of thing. So it's a commitment involving your whole life. Your whole life is going to change when you get married. Whenever I'm counseling a 20-year-old, they usually don't know that until after they're 30. And then they go, my little life has changed. I'm like, yep, that's how that works. 
It's a covenant. Your whole life will change. A contract is about acquiring something from someone. I give you money, you give me a car. And we assume that contracts can be broken. Because, you know, if you don't make the payments on your car, they take it away. And that's not, there's no moral implications. We assign moral implications to it, but not according to the contract. The contract doesn't care. If you don't make the payments, they take the car. No problem. Move on with your life. A covenant's different. A covenant is an other-oriented relationship with someone. Meaning, whenever I'm standing here at the altar, I'm pledging and promising that I would be for you. For your best. God does the same thing. God wants us and begs us to come into a covenant relationship with him. You know, a relationship that says, I'm for you. I want what's best for you. And God turns that around and says, yep, and I want what's best for you. In a contract, you spend your time protecting your self-interests over and against the other party. You want to know how I know that? We have these things called lawyers. They love contracts. They spend hours and days and years of their life developing contracts because the idea is is that I don't know if I can trust you, therefore I will write up a contract that states what will happen if you disappoint me. With a covenant, it's different. You see, you spend your time protecting the integrity of the relationship that binds you together. So a contract is like buying that car. A covenant is like a marriage. God expected the relationship with us in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and today to be covenant, not contract. Let's put those together again. This a commitment involving your whole life. God expects your whole life. From beginning to your end and beyond. An other-oriented relationship with someone. God orients his relationship for your benefit. And we orient our relationship for his glory. And then we protect the integrity of the relationship by how we behave. This is what all of the book of Leviticus is about. Whenever you get into the book of Leviticus, if you've ever read through the Bible in a year kind of thing, and and Genesis is cool, Exodus is okay, there's some story in there, it's cool. Once you get to Leviticus, it's a tough slog because you get into blood and bodily fluids and it just gets gross really quick, right? Whenever we land in that, what ends up happening is that we're we're so attuned in our modern Western minds to think contract that it ends up breaking down on us. If we instead think covenant, think about protecting the integrity of the relationship. That's Leviticus. God sets up rules after proclaiming his love and devotion. God then says, okay, now here's how this relationship will work. We do the same thing at the marriage altar, right? I love you. I care about you. I want to get married. And then we start figuring out how the relationship will work. See, there's a reason why the scriptures 
spent a lot of time over and over again talking about marriage relationships as this amazing illustration for the love of God and the relationship that we have with God. Because marriage is more of a covenant than a contract. But here's what's happened sometimes. Maybe it's happened for you. I know it's happened for me. After a while, we get used to the relationship. After a while, we get so comfortable at being roommates that we forgot to be in covenant love with each other. You see, whenever you're in a covenant love with someone, you don't ask the same kinds of questions as whenever you are in a contract. You see, if I were to come to you and we were to have lunch together or something like that, and I were to start asking you, okay, people ask me weird questions all the time. I'm a pastor and people ask me weird questions. So if I were to sit down and ask you some weird questions like this one, you know, how close to cheating on my wife can I get before you think she divorces me? I mean, is first base okay? Maybe second base. Maybe second base is about as far as I can. No, no, third base. Can I get third base? No, no, you would think I was an idiot, right? That's not how those, that's not how marriage works. Or maybe if I asked you this question, what little can I do before she kicks me out of the house? I mean, do I really have to wash dishes? The toilet. The toilet's off limits, right? I mean, really? Come on. All the women in the room are like, shut up, idiot. (laughs) It's a different set of questions that we need to ask. If you've been asking the questions of how little can I do or how much can I do and you still love me, your marriage has fallen into contract status and you need to get it out of that now and go back to covenant status. Covenants ask different kinds of questions. Covenants ask this question. How do we get rid of this obstacle that seems to get between us? Covenants ask this question, how can we understand each other more? Covenants ask this question, how can I better serve you? Okay, let's get out of the marriage illustration again. Let's get back to the illustration between you and me and God. Are we asking these kinds of questions of God? When was the last time you sat down during your quote-unquote quiet time and ask God, how do I get rid of this obstacle that's getting in the, between us? When was the last time you sat down after reading your Bible passage, because I do this, I read, my, I read through my Bible app and I'll just check the boxes and I love checking boxes in my Bible app. I feel really good about doing that. When was the last time you said, you know what, God, how, how can we understand each other more? Or maybe you need to ask God in your quiet time, how can I better serve you. What would it look like if we did that? I think it would change everything, wouldn't it? It would change the way you work. It would change the way you have your relationships with your family. It would change the relationships with your friends. It would change the relationships with your enemies. (laughs) It would change everything, wouldn't it? Let's keep going. Let's walk through Romans chapter 10 some more. It says, verse 4 says this. Verse 4 says this. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law is given. And as a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. See, the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament isn't that God changed. 
The covenant, that type of relationship is still what God wants. God wants a covenant relationship with you. But what happens in the New Testament is Jesus comes in on the scene and he says, I can be that with you, God, and I can be that with you, human. I put myself in the middle and I can be, and I can fill, fulfill the memorial part of the covenant. Because Jesus was perfect, right? So Jesus stands in the middle and says, I can fulfill the moral part of the covenant. You, you, you follow me, you do what I do, and you'll fulfill the moral part of the covenant. Jesus says, look, I can fill the atoning part of the covenant. There's this idea of that you and I are sinners, and therefore we are separated from God. And what Jesus does is he says, mm, that ain't going to work for me. I'm going to stick myself right in the middle of that. And I'm going to join God, and I'm going to join you, and we're going to put it together because I forgive you because of my death on a cross, because of my shed blood. I will take the two things that were separated and put them together and join them together in a way that they cannot be ripped apart again. And then Jesus says, I can even fulfill the relational part of the covenant. Because you know what? Let's just be honest. Sometimes it's hard to relate to God because he doesn't always talk back to us in a way that we understand. And sometimes whenever he does, that's what crazy people say. God told me. Did he? Really? No, no. That was just tacos. Jesus says, you can have a relationship with me. Because I'm a human being. I know what it was like to be you. I know when it hurts. I know what it feels like whenever you've been rejected by the people you thought loved you. I know what it feels like whenever people don't understand you because you've got a quirkiness to you. And Jesus had some quirkiness to him as well. Jesus understands you. Jesus gets you. So Jesus can be what's binding you and God together. Verse 9 says this, If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. Popular science tells us anymore, and I hate this phrase, you are enough. I understand what they're doing. For some of us, we think that we're not good enough, that we're not pretty enough, that we're not smart enough, that we're not whatever enough. And I understand that. But it's not true. You're not enough. Patrick spent the last two weeks in great detail telling us that we're not enough. See, only Jesus is enough. And whenever we recognize that Jesus makes us enough, see, what happens is that whenever we go back to the model over here and we go, oh, no, no, I'm enough, and we put that piece in, it messes up something else along the line. Because whenever I get to my marriage, I go, well, I'm enough. Why aren't you liking me right now? And well, it's because I was a jerk. Or maybe whenever I get to work and I sit in a meeting and I'm supposed to be leading the meeting, but the people that are around me are smarter than me. And if I claim my enoughness to them, <laughs> they can see through that. They can see that I really don't know what I'm talking about. And the respect that they have for me flies out the window. See, I'm not enough. And you're not enough. Only Jesus is enough. 
And then it says, um, believing in your heart. Ooh, I, here we go. I love this illustration. I use it with kids all the time. That chair can hold me up. I know this intellectually. I can declare it openly and publicly. But until I actually put my rear end on it and put my feet up in the air, I didn't prove it. See, you can declare that Jesus is your Lord. You can believe it intellectually. You can actually say it out loud. But until you believe it in your heart, with your whole being, with all that you are, every facet of your life, you haven't proved it yet. You have not crossed the line yet to salvation, to life, and to peace. You're missing something. And I bet you somebody can see through the veneer and they know. They're just not willing to tell you. So what do we do? Put our whole booty on the chair. We put our whole booty into that belief. Put your whole life into that belief. Romans 8, 6, let's repeat it one more time. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. Now, I'm a pastor. I'm not supposed to ask this question, but I ask it anyway. So I come to Jesus. What's in it for me? I'm not supposed to ask that question. But I do, all the time. This verse answers it. Life, peace. The way we kind of talk about it here is that we say following Jesus can make your life better and can make you better at life. Does it mean you're going to be rich, with a big house, and a perfect marriage? No. But you will be better at relationships whenever you follow Jesus. You will be better at how you think about yourself and your mental health whenever you follow Jesus. Is it going to be easy? Absolutely not. That's possible. Your life's going to be better because you make wise choices, isn't it? Financial Peace University is all about making wise choices. Following the teachings of Jesus. Did you catch that? It's like 50 grand people of debt that people had gotten rid of. That was amazing. Changed their lives. Let's wrap this up. Verse 13 through 15. So if you're a Christian, this is your part. Verse 13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? How can they believe in him unless they, if they have never heard? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? We need to be a little bit more like Paul. If you're already a Christian in this room, like most of you are, we probably need to be a little bit more like Paul. And we need to care with that deep uh, that, that pit of our stomach. Oh my goodness, it makes me nauseous to think about my friends and my family and my neighbors going to hell. And let that hang in the air just for a second. So I want you to ask yourself that question. Does it make me nauseous whenever I think about my family, my kids, my friends that will be eternally separated from God? Does it make me feel sick to the pit of my stomach? then what do I do about it? You tell them about Jesus. 
You see, what happens often, we're bad at this. We're terrible about this. We have people that stand on the corner with a megaphone and they're shouting about Jesus and sin and that everybody's a sinner and all that kind of stuff. And I usually look at that and I understand what, where their heart is. But it's terribly ineffective. You know what's way more effective? Me having a dinner conversation with my neighbor going, let me tell you what I found. I have found life and I have found peace and you can have it too. It's in Jesus. Because what is the one thing that affects everything? Jesus. The one thing that affects everything is Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for making a way when everything, in my power there is no way. To be right with you, to be right with the people that are around me every day, there's nothing I can do to get it right. I can try, I will fail. But Jesus, you stood in the gap. You stand there with arms open both, both directions, connecting God and connecting me and connecting the people that are in the seats here and watching online. And we need you. We need so much more of you and so much less of us in our decision making. In the way we process, in the way we think. In the way we build our lives. Because whenever we get you and the relationship with you right, it truly does affect everything. So thank you that you care enough. Thank you that the creator of the universe that built planets and stars and galaxies and we, with this new telescope we can see amazing things. We recognize how small we actually are. And yet you love us. Warts and all. Flaws and all. Weird personality quirks. Introvert, extrovert, doesn't matter to you. You love us anyway. Thank you. Father, for the person in here who kind of walked in and, and, and they haven't crossed that line of faith, they haven't crossed that line that says, Jesus, I want you to be my savior and my boss. I'm going to openly declare it. I'm going to believe it with everything that I am. Father, I pray that today is the day that they let someone know, I need you to help me walk across that line because I've been close, but I've never crossed it. And Father, I pray that they will reach out to me They'll reach out to the office and they'll say, you know what? Today's the day. Now is the time. The most important thing I'll ever do is make this decision and live this way. So God, may that be the day. May that be this moment. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. You guys have a great week and we'll see you next Sunday, if not sooner. Bye, guys.